Okay, good morning. You all hear me? Yep, welcome to winter time in Singapore. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that we will get to be led by you through the Holy Spirit to get to the heart of this passage, to know what it means to be meeting together as your church rightly before you, to consider the death of Jesus and what it means when we participate in the Lord's Supper, so that everything that we do, we may do things pleasing to you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, I uh, turned 40 uh, a few years ago, and I noticed something happened when I uh, turned 40. I'm not sure what that happens to you, but it happens to me. When you, uh, when you start turning 40, people start asking you this question. Are you feeling healthy these days? Right? And they, you know, you always ask, oh, how's your cholesterol? Or how's your eyesight? Uh, or have you had your blood test recently? Right? So, I just met out some other people and they say, you know, Oh, you know, you know, when you get older, uh, your, your eyesight, you won't be able to see very well from the pulpit. You know, then you'll need these special transition glasses. You know? And um, even last week, I was looking at the newspaper and I saw an advertisement that uh, I never ever noticed. And if you're young, you'll never notice this advertisement in the newspaper. It had this advertisement which said, you know, do you find yourself going to the toilet more than once a night? Uh, do you find that your bladder is full even after you go to the toilet? If, if so, please go for a prostate checkup. And I was thinking, oh, I've never noticed these ads before in the newspaper, right? Then I started, started thinking to myself, how often do I go to the toilet in the middle of the night? Right? So, actually, when you reach the age of 40, you're pretty concerned about your health. You know? So, before that, whenever I meet the youth, yeah, you know, I'll meet with Ray, and then he'll go for Coca-Cola and burgers, right? But then now, I know, I must go for something healthy. Right? So, all this thinking about health, uh, now that I'm 40, uh, got me thinking a bit about today's passage, because... Actually, today's passage, as is the whole book of Corinthians, is all about the health of the church. I mean, really, it's, it's a health checkup for the church. And over the last few weeks and last year, when we looked at 1 Corinthians, we saw that the health of the Corinthian church was not good. They had some health problems. Uh, they had a problem with sexual morality in their church. They had a problem in terms of idolatry. Uh, last week, we saw that there were some people who had a mistaken understanding of men and women Christian identity. Now, in today's passage, we see that he has a, a very serious health concern for their church, for their gathering. You see why? In the beginning of chapter 11, if you remember last week, uh, this is up here on the slide. Remember he said this at the beginning of chapter 11 last week. He said, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. This is what we read last week. But this week, it begins in verse 17. And uh, you need your Bibles. Open to me to chapter 11, verse 17. Look at what it says there. In verse 17, read with me, right? It says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. I have no praise for you. Right? So, in the beginning, he says, Yes, you've been doing well. You've been holding on to these teachings. And these, uh, tr- these things I've been passing on to you. But here in verse 17, I have no praise for you at all. Why do I have no praise for you? For your meetings do more harm than good. For your meetings do more harm than good. Now, why is it their meetings are doing more harm than good? Well, verse 18 goes on to say, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Verse 18 says, 
Now, they come together as a church, and when he uses the word church here, he doesn't mean the word church as in church building, 19F Charlton Lane, but he's saying church as a gathering of people. When you come together as an assembly of God people, God's people, what happens? There are divisions among you. Now, in chapter 1, when we started all the way back in the beginning of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, remember there were divisions in the church already. But the divisions, if you look up here, the divisions came because they were following different leaders within the church. Remember, some of them were saying, I follow Paul. And some people were saying, I follow Paulus. And some people were saying, I follow Cephas. But that's not what the division that Paul is talking about here. It's a very, altogether a very different division which he finds in the church at Corinth. And how does he describe this division? In verse 20-22, he goes into detail about what's this division that's happening in the Corinthian church. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not, he says. And what we see here is, I think there are two problems. We don't know exactly what's happening in this church, right? But I think there are two clear problems which were causing divisions in the church. The first problem, as you read here, is some people were starting to eat before other people. In verse 21, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. And I think in the olden days, in the first century, second century of the church, what used to happen was, okay, now we have, actually this is a very good time, right, because we're having a Holy Communion today. But what would probably happen, uh, many people feel in the past, is that they would have a communal meal. Everybody would come together, and they would have a communal meal, and as the communal meal was coming to an end, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. They would take the bread, just as Jesus did, because when Jesus met in the upper room, they probably, he didn't just have bread and wine, that's it, right? But they got together for a communal meal, there was probably other food, but at the, during the, the, the course of the meal, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And what happened, was happening here, was that some people were coming earlier, the food was all there, they were hungry, but they didn't wait for other people and they started eating. They started eating and they ate so much that when other people came, there was no food left and they were hungry. Right? So it shows a lack of concern, a lack of consideration, this bochap attitude, because I'm here first, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. Okay? And, and I won't leave enough food for other people who come later. So that's the first problem. The second problem is, it says there that they were not sharing the food. It says there in verse uh, 21b, One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in? So, what probably was happening here is, imagine uh, we come together as BTPC, and uh, usually, you know, after service, we have our um, communal uh, high brunch or whatever, like, brunch, okay? And, but usually, it's one person who's assigned to bring their food. But imagine we have a potluck, okay? All of us bring food. All of us bring food. Now, the richer people will bring their sashimi and their foie gras and their caviar on little biscuits with uh, cheese and their expensive French champagne, right? Okay? Whereas the poorer of us, we, we might not be able to afford so much, so we just bring one or two triquela. Okay? <laughs> right? Now, what happens is, it seems to be that when they came together for this potluck meal before the Lord's Supper, the rich people 
were eating all their food and drinking all their champagne and getting drunk, and the poor people with their chui kue, they, they, they didn't have enough to eat, they were hungry. So, there were these people coming eating first, and there was no food left for other people. There were rich people coming, and they were eating all their food and getting drunk, and other people, the poor people, were left hungry. Now, in the world's eyes, you might say, what is the big deal? Because this happens all the time when you go for a buffet, isn't it? Or have you ever been on a tour? Have you ever been on those holiday tours, right? People eat before other people all the time. They finish all the food and there's nothing left for you. So what is the big deal? Why is it such a big deal that Paul says, I have no praise for you, for you in this at all? The problem is that this was taking place in church. And it was taking place among God's people. So this lack of love, this lack of care, this lack of uh, concern for people, this division between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, this snobbery, Paul describes in two ways. He says it is dividing the church and it is despising the church of God. See, notice how he describes their behavior in verse 18, which is up here. Uh, okay, next, next slide. Yep, next, uh, yep. Verse 18 and verse 22. It says, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, again, not a building, but a gathering of God's people, there are divisions among you. So this action of lack of love, lack of care, is dividing the church. Verse 22. Or do you despise the church of God and those who have nothing? Now the word despise here, if you look up the dictionary, basically means looking down at something or treating something with very little respect. So what he's saying here is that their behavior is not just about treating one or two people in an unloving, uncaring or snobbish and arrogant or divisive way. He's saying you are actually dividing the church and despising the church. And this is a theme which is running through the whole book of Corinthians, that the way you treat individual Christians affects the church. Right? So, in chapter 3, you might remember, he accused the leaders who are drawing these people to themselves in the wrong way. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So the action of people to one Christian can actually divide the church, despise the church and destroy the church. And what Paul is saying here and the Bible is saying is how we act in church to one another is a very, very serious thing. Because if you mess with God's church and if you mess with God's people, you are messing with God. He said, you're messing with God. So that's why it's very serious because it is not just about how we act towards individuals but because they are part of God's church it has very big ramifications because each of them belongs to God. So I want you to take a moment now. I want you to look at the person next to you for a moment, right? I want you to look at the people around you. Okay? They are not just Mr. or Mrs. Lim or Tan, right? They're not just some child, they're not just some youth in our youth group, but they are part of God's church. 
And the way you treat that particular person, if you are willfully ungodly towards them, if you sinfully do things to hurt them, if you humiliate them, if you affect them and stumble them spiritually, then you're actually dividing the church and despising God's church. You're not treating it as valuable. And I think how important that is for us to hear, isn't it? Because last week, uh, or the week before, remember there was this article about the mega church in uh, the Straits Times. And I was reflecting on it. I was thinking, it's no different when, say, as a pastor, I use the church for my own purposes. And I distort the church, or I use the church. I'm actually despising the church, isn't it? Because the church itself doesn't belong to me as a pastor, but it belongs to God. Same for us as individuals in the congregation. When you mistreat the other person, you're not mistreating just Mr. Tan or Mrs. Lim, but you're actually mistreating and despising God. Because these people belong to God. All the people in the church are to be united in love and care and concern. And Paul says, and the Bible says an amazing thing in verse 20, something which is uh, quite startling when you read it for the first time. He says, when you come together, he says, it is not the Lord's Supper who eat. So serious it is that if there's no love and care and unity in the church, that if, you, if a church comes together in that way, they may as well not come together all to eat the Lord's Supper because it is not the Lord's Supper in God's eyes. In verse 23 to 26, he goes on to explain, in case they've forgotten, he wants to refresh their memory, what the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion means. He said, For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. So he's not making this up. This is something that he's received from God and Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, the two things that uh, Jesus focuses on here is um, the bread, the bread, right, and uh, the wine. And Jesus says, the bread, uh, they were probably eating the meal with his, uh, his disciples, he said, look, this bread, this bread, I give to you, this is my body broken to you. Now, for us, it's a very simple image. We think, okay, Jesus died on the cross. He gave his body for people. But I think there's so much more richness in terms of what Jesus is saying. Because don't forget, when Jesus said this, this was the Passover meal. Right? Remember, it's the Passover meal. And whenever the Jewish people came to celebrate the Passover meal, they remembered what God did thousands of years ago when he saved them from Egypt. And the Passover meal reminded them how God saved them from the death of their firstborn child by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb which they ate. And Jesus said this Passover meal is not about remembering the lamb that died all those thousands of years ago, but this Passover meal from now on will remember me. I am the Passover lamb which dies for you. Not the Passover meal, the lamb that died all those thousands of years ago. 
And it would have been very shocking for the disciples when they heard that. They would have thought, I wonder whether we heard Jesus right. Because every year, since the year I can remember, since I was born, when we celebrate the Passover meal, we remember the Lamb all those years ago in the past. But Jesus said, no, the Passover meal is not about that Lamb that died all those years ago, but it is me, the one and only ultimate Passover Lamb. So Jesus is saying, my body is given for you so that you will be able to live. You will be able to be saved just as God saved the Jews and the Israelites in Egypt all those years ago. But then he turns to the cup, right? He turns to the cup and he said, this cup is the cup, the blood of the new covenant. That's what it says there, isn't it? In verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I think that again, when the Jews heard it, they were thinking of what happened in the past. Because the past was the old covenant. When the Jews came out of Egypt, God gave them the old covenant. But then now Jesus says, look, this meal is no longer about the old covenant, it's about the new covenant which is instituted in my blood. See, blood is very important. Uh, we don't use blood anymore to make covenants. You know, covenant is a contract. Um, I guess we, uh, we are a lot more civilized, right? Imagine every time you have to make a contract to buy a car or to buy a house, you've got to spill a bit of blood. Okay, maybe we'll be a bit reluctant to buy so many cars and houses, right? Okay? But in the past, to inaugurate a contract, they needed blood. And Jesus says the blood that he sheds on the cross inaugurates a new covenant. And what is that new covenant? In Jeremiah chapter 31, which is up here, uh, sorry it's a bit small because I have to squash everything in, God says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, and he goes on to say, verse 33, This covenant I will make with the house of Israel after the time declares the Lord. I will put the, my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now, this new covenant shows that when Jesus dies on the cross, He doesn't save people from Egypt or some worldly power. He saves them from judgment. It is God's way of bringing forgiveness of sins. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. When we eat the bread, when we drink the ribena, it is remembering the death of Jesus. And that's why Jesus says here, do this in remembrance of me. And this is the crux of the problem, you see. Do this in remembrance of me. Because the Corinthians were not remembering what Jesus did on the cross. The word here, remembrance, is not something where, yes, okay, remember the death of Jesus. Yeah, I, I remember. I, think, yeah, I remember he died. Yep. I agree that he died. The word remembrance here talks about a dynamic remembrance. 
active remembrance where it makes a difference where the death of Jesus has touched your life. And if the death of Jesus has touched your life, it will affect the way that you treat other people. Don't you agree? If you know that Jesus died for the person sitting next to you and he is valuable because Jesus died for him or her, then it will affect the way that you treat that person, don't you think? I want to read you this quote, if you just allow me to read it, from this book called The Priority of Preaching. And he says a very powerful thing. He, said, he says, um, Our business is not about Bible interpretation, but Bible performance. We need to be the visible interpretation of the Word, a community in which the Word of Christ is lived out and made concrete. You see, there's no point coming here and having the Lord's Supper, but not living out what the Lord's Supper means in our lives. Don't you think that is true? When you remember the word of Jesus, when you remember the work of Jesus, it must change the way that you live and the way that you act towards other people. And Paul says, if it doesn't change your life, then it is not the Lord's Supper for you at all. He goes on to say, in verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That means that when you eat it, when we eat it, there must be a change in us so that we proclaim it to the world. Don't you think so? Something supernatural has happened in the death of Jesus. He has miraculously brought forgiveness into the world. And we proclaim it in the world by the way that we supernaturally, in a miraculous way, relate to one another. Don't you think? When we come together and we have division and we have conflict and we have selfishness and we have rudeness and insults, we are not celebrating the death of Jesus but we are just celebrating our worldliness. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, he goes on to say in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread or drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we will not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now, this passage here says that we must examine ourselves. Uh, we must not eat in an unworthy manner. And I remember when I've read this passage in the past, I always thought, okay, it's about when I come and eat the Lord's Supper, it's because you know, I must ask myself, have I been lustful? Or have I been angry? Or maybe I've been greedy? Uh, or something I've done, lah. And I must ask God for forgiveness. But I realize when I study the context of this passage, Paul's not actually saying that to the Corinthians. He's saying, it's not what you have done, it's what you haven't done. See, we think of it as a very individualistic way. What, 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 what haven't I done, right? What, what I do, what I not do right as I come to eat the Lord's Supper. But he's actually speaking to them as a corporate group. And he sort of says, look, what have you not done in terms of love? How have you not loved and cared 
and show concern for the people around you. If you haven't done that, then when you come and eat the Lord's Supper, you've not, you've come in an unworthy manner. Can you see that from the passage? He's not talking about individual sin as in, you know, myself, what have I done? But he's saying corporately, as we come together, we must all show love and care and concern for one another. If not, we all come and eat of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, I've seen that happen before. Uh, I went to a church once, and um, it's very interesting because they had uh, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, and there was a mad rush for everybody because uh, this was where the, the, the pastors at the front giving out the elements. Lah. So everybody had a mad rush lining up to come to the front, right? It was a bit like uh, Starbucks or McDonald's. And after they received the wafer or the bread, they just rushed off and, and got into their cars and left. And, you know, I was thinking, there is no, even a pretense or even a show of being loving and caring or, you know, being part of a, a fellowship of people. Because all they want to do is take the bread and go home and play golf or watch TV or go to the cinema or eat lunch or whatever. See, what it says here in this passage is when we fail to show love and care and concern to one another, then we haven't been touched by what the Lord's Supper means. We haven't been touched by the death of Jesus. We haven't felt the love of Jesus for each other. So as we look at this passage, we have to ask ourselves, as we examine ourselves, are our actions dividing the church? Or do our actions unite the church? Uh, through my actions, the lack of actions or my active actions, do I encourage people or do I humiliate people? Do I edify them or do I stumble them in their Christian walk? That is the way that we are supposed to examine ourselves in the context of this passage. And what happens in the Corinthian church is that God has started disciplining them. It says, so some of them have become weak and sick and a number of them have fallen asleep, uh, which means they died. Now you might sort of ask yourself, um, how does that work? Right? How, do, how do you get disciplined if you're dead? Because you know if you're dead, you can't change, right? Don't you think so? Dead is dead. And, uh, but I think the, the people dying is a warning to the other people that they all need to change. Now, you might sort of ask yourself, well, in the day and age that we live in, uh, does that still happen? Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But in the first church, the first century church particularly, when we read the book of uh, Corinthians, when we read the book of Acts, God acted in ways to show His church what was important. In the book of Acts, if you remember the very famous incident of Ananias and Sapphira, you all, you all remember this? About how Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property and they said they were going to give all their money, but they kept some back. you recall that? And because of that, uh, the, the apostle Peter rebuked them and both of them died. And the whole church was filled with fear. And when we did this passage before, remember we said God was sending a warning to the church that hypocrisy was a very serious threat to the church. I hope you all remember that. And in this case, God is doing the same thing to the church in Corinth. He was saying, this lack of love, this division, this disunity, this lack of concern for one another in the church, it is also a serious threat to God's church, to the church of God. 
So as we look at this passage today, yes, it's about the Lord's Supper, but it's more than just the Lord's Supper. It's what does the Lord's Supper actually change in my life? Am I touched by it? Does, does the eating of, of the bread, drinking the wine, has it flowed into my behavior? Because it's all about how we treat other people. How we treat other people in the church. There must be love. There must be concern. We cannot divide ourselves the way the world divides itself. Racial lines, social lines, economic lines. Because everybody here, if you believe in Jesus, Jesus Christ has died for you. And Jesus has saved you. And we are all equal in Christ. And we have to love each other greatly. Remember Jesus said how much we must love each other? And if we do not do that, then if we, if we, if we hate each other, we are ungodly to one another, if we lack care and concern, if we are bored up with one another, then there's no point having the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper has not touched your heart. What Jesus has done on the cross has not affected you at all. See, the Lord's Supper is not like what some churches say, oh, you know, you, it's because of the right order, the right elements, you know, should we have wafers or should we have bread? You know, this sort of bread. It's not the real bread. Some people say you must have one loaf, right? This is just cut bread, right? Does it make it real? Should we have wine or should we have Ribena? Maybe rose syrup, right? It's not all these things. What matters is, does it actually affect your heart and flow out into the life of the church? That is what really counts. So, in conclusion, he began by asking, how is our spiritual health for the church? Well, in this passage, the spiritual health is marked by care and concern and real brotherly and sisterly love for one another. That ultimately, the church is made up of people that God has saved through the valuable death of His one and only Son. And we must love one another greatly. We must see each other as family, as friends. Do we see each other that way? I was reading this book uh, called The Deliberate Church. Actually, it's, um, it's a very good book. I'll give it some away. And he actually counsels here a very wise thing. And he said, you know, as a pastor, when you go out to churches... You must never make use of the church as a springboard to go to another church. So, you know, if you want to go to church, you say you should aim to see yourself there for decades. Because church is made of people and you must see them as valuable and not use them. Because you know some pastors, they say, okay, I'll stay here for two years. Because apparently in America, the average length of time that pastors stay in churches is two to three years. And then they move on to something bigger or better. But he says the church is not like that. Church is about people who are valuable to God, who need to be loved. And this love must take the form of patience and time. And the same way I was thinking for us as well, when we look at each other, how do you see each other, the people sitting around you? Do you see them as people that you are really loving or in love with or in a, in a relationship of care and concern, like a family? Do you see them as friends? Because that's what the Bible is saying. That you should see them this way. We live in a time where people see churches like consumers. The church is like Planet Fitness, you know? Or Pure Yoga. Or uh, Starbucks. Or, I don't know, some 
your McDonald's. So you just come and you participate, you get what you want and you leave. But that's not what a church is like. The Bible says a church is about relationships. A real commitment in relationship. Where we commit to love one another. To edify and build up one another. So, this pastor was saying how, I don't know whether it's true or not, but uh, this pastor is, uh, actually it was Dick Lucas, uh, I sent out the email last week. So Dick Lucas, you know, he's a very famous pastor in England, he was saying that uh, he knows of a pastor in England where, again, it's the Anglican church, so they come to the front and, uh, you know, the, the, the pastor in the Anglican church will always give out the bread and they will receive it like, and they share the cup. So these two people came up to the front and they had been ungodly in the, in the church in the sense that they were always fighting one another, causing divisions in the church. They were, this, they were humiliating other people and, and causing disunity in the church. So they came up to the front and instead of uh, uh, this pastor giving them the bread or the wafer, he gave them two little pieces of paper. right? And the piece of paper said, first be reconciled one another, then come again. And I think that's a really brave thing. Right? I don't know whether that's something that uh, you know, many people do, but, but this pastor really understood what the passage was about, isn't it? That if in your life you are not loving to other people and you are causing other people to be stumbled and humiliated and dividing up and despising God's church, then, then what's the point? The, the Lord's Supper is meaningless to you. You're not living it out. It hasn't touched your heart. The love and death of Jesus has not flowed into your behavior. And there's no point in you participating in it. Because there's no remembering and there's no proclaiming. So as you look at this passage, I think it's a great challenge to us of how church is really about love and care of one another. And for those of us who do not take it seriously, then there is the, the great thread that Paul says here that you know ultimately the discipline will flow into condemnation. And I think that will be a terrible thing to happen. So let us, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, truly endeavour to love and care for one another and to see each other differently. Not with eyes of the world, but with God's eyes. Each of us are valuable. And that we are all friends and family because we belong to God. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, Truly we want to thank you for the death of Jesus and what it means for us that truly we have received forgiveness, that we have received peace, we have received escape from eternal hell and judgment. Help us to see that when we reflect on the death of Jesus, that we must impact our lives as it sinks into our heart. That we will show love to all our brothers and sisters here that we will show care and concern to each of us here because that is the love that you've shown us. That each person here is valuable in themselves, not because of who they are in this world, but because they were saved by Jesus. Help us therefore to really love one another deeply. That our church may not have division or disunity, but rather be united in love and care for one another. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.